Hello, and welcome back to the Chris Yeh Podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh. In this episode, I'm joined by Scott Johnson of Blitzscaling Ventures to discuss the Blitzscalable Venture Deals of June 2021. Enjoy. Well, it's time once again to look over the Blitzscalable Venture Deals. I'm joined by my partner at Blitzscaling Ventures, Scott Johnson. And today we're going to be looking over venture deals that were announced in the month of June 2021. And I think we got a pretty good crop today. Scott, what do you think? Well, we always seem to have a pretty good crop. And this crop was selected from 150 different companies. So that's 158, sorry, 158 companies that we examined for blitz scalability. And we have six, sorry, five that we want to talk about today that scored above 80. And that's, you know, that's a little, that's a, that's about right. You know, we usually have a handful of deals when we have that many in the denominator, the numerator is up right around five. So that's, uh, and they're a good crop for sure. Uh, you know, the continue to see a lot of blitz scalable companies coming across the wire with great investors. Yeah. And again, I think something to remember is historically we thought, oh, you know, it's like uh, three companies per month, but that was when the pace of venture deals was about a hundred deals a month. And in fact, the pace of venture investment is the highest we've ever seen. I think 158 is an all time record in terms of the companies that we track during the time we've been tracking them. That's right. And, and just to remind everyone, that's not all the deals that were done in venture. That's just the ones that were done by some of the most famous VCs, uh, the top VCs, the ones that uh, that are the most established names and the ones that we tend to track. So it's, uh, you know, it's the Sequoias and benchmarks of the world. Uh, Excel, certainly General Catalyst is uh, featured in here today, um, Andreessen. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's that ilk of, of fund. We look at all the deals that they do, and it had been around 100 uh, during the pandemic. It's stepped up to 150 really for the last four or five months. So it, it takes us uh, longer to go through them, but it's great to have that many to choose from. Absolutely. So what's the first deal on the list? This first one is called Exclaim, and it's a way of creating a marketplace to bid on bad debt. So somebody doesn't pay you, and there's a contract that says they ought to pay you, and you can factor that, just hand it to a factor uh, for a fixed price. Or what Exclaim wants to do is say, look, don't just hand it to a factor. Why don't you let people bid on this? You know, some not all receivables are created equal, and you don't want to just hand it off at, on 50 cents on the dollar. Maybe somebody will give you 80 cents on the dollar. So it's a really interesting idea to help people maximize what they can get for debt that they just can't seem to collect themselves. And it's um, it's a deal that was uh, a 6.6 million dollar seed round uh, led by General Catalyst, and the company's located in LA. So I love this deal. Just as a quick reminder to folks, the way we evaluate blitz scalability is we look at these seven different elements of blitz scaling, winner take most, viral growth or distribution, product market fit, market size, gross margin, org scalability, and operational scalability. We grade them from a one to 10 scale and feed them into our special formula that prioritizes the companies that do really well and heavily weights the key categories, the essential elements of winner take most and viral growth or distribution, which are by far the most important. So when we look at X claim, 
The reason why I like it and the reason why it counts as blitz scalable is primarily due to the fact that it really has a strong winner take most characteristic. As a way for people to auction off bad debt receivables, it is a classic marketplace dynamic. And as you guys may recall from previous discussions of marketplace dynamics, when you have a two-sided marketplace, the network effects get stronger as the size of the transactions increases, as the differentiation and uniqueness of the transactions increases, and as the level of consideration made with the transaction increases. And in the case of X-Claim, it scores really well on all three of those. We're talking about bad debt claims that are not just you know hundreds of dollars, but generally tens of thousands or possibly even hundreds of thousands of dollars. So this is a very big ticket item. There's a lot of differentiation because each bad debt is different. It's like who owes the money? What is the contract under which the money is owed? But by the way, unlike something like a used car, this contract is electronic. You don't have to go someplace to see it. You can review it online. You have all the differentiation, but you can see all the differentiation without ever leaving the comfort of your chair. And so that really gives it some great characteristics. So we gave it a 10 out of 10 on winner take most, which gets it off to a great start. It does, but they took a step back in the distribution area. And with any two-sided marketplace, you have to get the buyers to show up and the sellers to show up. And if they just magically show up, then great. But usually that's not how it works. As a matter of fact, you often have a cold start problem with marketplaces. And in this case, you know, you want to have enough bad debt uh, uh, securities available so that people can look at them and evaluate more than one and buy the one that they bid on the ones that they want. So you need a lot on the supply side. And then on the on the buyer side, you know, you want a lot of people coming to this marketplace so that you're getting the best price when you sell it. So it's really hard uh, to, to get this thing going and you need to therefore spend some money to do that. And that's, uh, that's why we don't have a great score. We give them a seven out of 10 for viral growth and distribution because you're gonna have to go out and find the people who might wanna buy this stuff and maybe they're the factoring companies and they're, they're pretty easy to find, but you have to go out and sort of get them set up in your marketplace. And then they're gonna say, okay, so where are the receivables? So then you gotta go out and find those. And I'm not sure how you do that easily either. It's certainly not viral. It's not like, so your friend is gonna sort of just zap you on uh, Instagram and say, hey, you gotta do this. I think, you know, once it becomes well known that this is possible, then yeah, but to get it going is, is gonna be hard. So. We gave them a seven out of 10. I think this is not that big a world. So it's, you know, it's, it, there is word of mouth in this world. You know, the people that collect bad debts and the people who have them to sell are, you know, they, they, they do kind of communicate with one another to some degree. There's a best practices thing across accounting firms and things like that. So they'll use the same service providers, they use the same lawyers. Those lawyers will say, hey, have you heard of this? So they don't get a zero by any means. I think they, they do have decent distribution. It's just, it's not Facebook. Right, it's not high velocity virality, which would be ideal. Not gonna be the case. Not like a lot of people out there are like, hey, I've got some bad debts. <laughs> just not the sort of thing you wanna brag about. Yeah, yeah, gotbaddebtgod.com. I maybe well maybe they should get that URL. All right, so let's let's zip through the other elements. We've got product market fit, uh, always a guess at this point because we're not users of the product, but having tried to get rid of bad debt 
in companies that I've invested in in the past, I know that this is a great thing that I would have reached for. And so I gave we well, we gave them a nine and I, I I advocate for that nine out of 10. I think this is a, just a terrific idea. And even if the user experience isn't perfect yet, just the idea that you can bring these products to market and have them bid on is fascinating and great. So love that. Um, market size, bad debt is an enormous market. Not everybody pays their bills. So it's, um, it's, 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 I don't know, I can't measure it. It's going to be enormous. Uh, and gross margin, we're at a marketplace, right? So what do marketplaces get? They get a take. And the, the take itself is pretty much 100% gross margin. Like, you know, there, there may be some cost here in validating, like, I don't know how they're going to validate that this, these, um, these items they put up for bid are, are legit. But there, so there may be a little cost there, but not that much. So, you know, I think we're, we're saying that gross margin is excellent. Uh, scalability, again, there's some, you know, there's some uh, probably some regulatory things or things like that that they have to deal with uh, to, to get to market. There's going to be customer service, some handholding, some, hey, wait a minute, this isn't what I thought, sort of questions to answer on the order of, you know, any exchange that, uh, that, you know, marketplaces, they do have customer service issues that make them a little less scalable or, right. you know, to hire more people. So, and in this particular case, because they're dealing with bad debts, there have to be things like filings with the courts to discharge claims and things like that, that X claim takes on as a part of its business. And those take time and effort. And that doesn't mean that this isn't a great business, but we just cannot say, oh, it's trivially easy to do that. Now, when we look at that all together, that means we gave them a nine for org scalability and eight for ops scalability. When you run that through our formula, that gives us a score of 80, which means that X claim is just above the threshold, just at that threshold and is considered blitz scalable. It is, and the you know where can they improve? Well, they can certainly, we can maybe learn something about their scalability and, and it might be a little better than we're, we're saying. But the main way that they could wow us is if they have some really magical way of solving that cold start problem and really getting the buyers and the sellers to the table cheaply and quickly, uh, that it's possible that they're doing that. We just need to go out and ask them and, and their score could go way up if that's true. All right. Oh, and so, by the way, one more thing. Sorry. It, 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 sometimes listeners want to go and check out the company. It's X dash claim. So it's a, there's a hyphen there in between X, the letter X and claim.com. So it's X dash claim.com. Got it. All right. Well, the next company on the list is lesson. Let's spell that out for folk. It's L E S S E N. It's also at lesson.com, not O as in lesson in school, but lesson as in reduce. And what Lesson does is it's essentially sort of like a managed marketplace, a managed Angie's list for property managers, commercial property managers, and residential property managers, not just individual homeowners, to go ahead and connect with vendors for maintenance services and other things like that. So it's a classic marketplace but it's not a pure marketplace it's not just a connecting mechanism there are also the elements of managing the process so it's a true managed marketplace where the workflows and the reporting and all of that flows through lesson as well right and this is a 35 million dollar series a that they did and it was led by fifth wall with participation from general catalyst and who else is in there kosla 
So really a strong investor team here and an interesting marketplace that they're building. The uh, property managing is a pain in the neck and you need a lot of different vendors to, to help you do it. And sometimes the vendor that you counted on disappears or is on vacation or whatever, and you need a different one. Uh, or sometimes it's, it's, you know, you need to find someone to fix something that you don't usually have to. And where do you go and who do you turn to and to get the ones that are used to doing this work for property managers and not individuals is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really nice to have one source to find all those people. Yeah. And lesson grades out in a very similar way to X claim. So as we heard with X claim, it's a question of what is the size of the transaction? What is the level of selection that matter? How much does it matter? What is the level of consideration? And these are not as big a transaction as X claim, but it is a high consideration thing. If you're a property manager, you're purchasing these services on a regular ongoing basis as opposed to X claim, which is one time. And so that really helps out and you really do care, right? You want a great provider because otherwise you could end up with a situation where they botched the job and that costs you far more money than any repair or maintenance service could get because you're not able to rent out the apartments. So we still also gave less than a 10 out of 10 on, on winner take most, which makes it really strong. And we gave it slightly higher on viral growth of distribution an eight instead of a seven. And that's due in part to the fact that it's a lot easier to find the people who need these services. The property managers are a well-known existing market. They're not trying to hide the fact that they have these properties. In fact, they advertise them quite strongly. So that just makes it a little bit easier to get out to the entire marketplace. Another thing that's interesting is that these are different kinds of marketplaces. Lesson is more regional because people have to show up in person and do work. And so you can't hire, you know, whereas you can sell a receivable to anybody who wants to buy it and it's electronic. And so it's just sort of a single national global marketplace. With Lesson, it's a bunch of regional marketplaces. So it's a very different rollout strategy. Ultimately, it's the same powerful network effect, but it's, it's really rolled out in a very different way. Yep. So going down the list, you know, where we, we, we really gave Lesson a better score on operational scalability than Xclaim because with Lesson, they're not doing the work themselves and they're not filing things with the courts. They're just acting more like a matchmaker. But there is some organizational scalability issues because, again, now we're dealing with people who are going on site. And you, because you're playing a role in actually managing the work, now if something goes wrong, if somebody doesn't show up, guess what? The property manager feels like they have the right to call up and ask, where the hell are my providers? And so there's probably going to be a much greater customer service component here. Yeah, that's speculation, but it's it's a pretty good guess. Uh, but really gross margin, again, you know, really strong here. The take is the take, and that's 100% gross margin, as you remember. Uh, if, if they charge 20% of the fee paid, then that means that 20% is 100% gross margin, even though it feels like it's only a 20% margin. It's not. It's 100% margin on that 20%, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. So when we go through and we total it all up, there are a few minor differences for max claim. It actually boosts Lessons blitz scalability score all the way up to 82. So again, solidly blitz scalable, definitely interesting. And 
You mentioned the investors, Scott. Most people probably recognize the names of General Catalyst and Coastal Ventures, two great venture firms, and General Catalyst especially we've done a lot with in the past. But then Fifth Wall is a new player that is the leader in the prop tech space. And so if you heard Fifth Wall and you're like, oh, I don't know what Fifth Wall is. Well, Fifth Wall is its leader in its space. And so it also certainly fits into the category of a premium VC. And the other thing that's sort of a little different with Lesson is that they're in Scottsdale, Arizona. They're not in California. They're not in Texas or New York or Boston. They're not in a traditionally sort of hot venture market. They are in Scottsdale, which has a lot of great entrepreneurs. I'm not trying to put them down. It's just like they're not as big a center of entrepreneurship as some of those other places I mentioned. So good for Scottsdale. I think, you know, that sort of shows that Arizona's up and coming. Absolutely. So the next company on our list is Co-op Commerce or Coop, in other words, because in this case, the URL is just coopcommerce.co. Again, if I said co-op with the dash in the middle, there is no dash in the URL, but it's co-op commerce. And what co-op commerce does is pretty interesting. So if you've ever gone, gone shopping on Amazon, what you've probably seen as you're looking at a particular product or you're checking out is Amazon says, Amazon says hey, would, you might also be interested in this. You might also be interested in this. And that's what Amazon's able to do because they have such a broad selection. They can figure out what the relevant, potentially complementary products are and, and get them sold. Well, right. What co-op commerce does is they do that for independent merchants. So if you're an independent merchant, you can become a part of this online co-op where you are partnering with other merchants that are complementary, not competitive, where when people are checking out on your Spotify checkout, system they're seeing oh here are some other things that you might want and every time one of those advertisements shows up you get a credit and then that lets you show up in their various checkout processes and the reason scott and i got really excited about it is this actually takes us all the way back to one of the great success stories of the early days of the internet link exchange and what link exchange it was very simple you posted the link exchange banner on your website and for every two advertisements that it showed you got to show your advertisement somewhere else so it was a great way of marketing your company and then link exchange then took the excess inventory and sold it off to other advertisers and link exchange was highly successful was purchased by microsoft very early on in the days when being purchased for 400 million dollars was a big deal and it also incidentally enough launched the careers of tony shea and alfred lynn because they were the founders of the company and so link exchange in some ways is then responsible for all the things that those guys have done since then Right. And, you know, attach rate. So I don't know how much everyone knows about e-commerce, but the attach rate is an enormous profit driver. You spend all this money trying to get somebody to put something in a shopping cart and begin the checkout process. And if you can get them to attach additional things, once you've accomplished that really difficult goal, then it's just free money. And usually if you're a small retailer, you don't have a lot of, you know, people who bought this would also like to buy this type of items. You know, you have the one thing that you're trying to sell and not a lot else that's similar that you could use to attach. So the idea that you can reach out into the expanse of all of e-commerce and attach anything and get paid for that attachment is pretty 
interesting. And then having your item attached to other people's shopping carts as they're checking out, that's pretty exciting too. So it, you know, just lets these smaller e-commerce players compete with Amazon a little better. And it's yet another uh, example of artificial intelligence. You know, it's intelligence that's deciding what are the similar items. And so the fact that there's an intelligence engine behind all this, trying to figure out what are the best things to attach, that's part of the network effect here. It's a strong part of the network effect, right? Absolutely. And that's why we gave it a 10 out of 10 on, on winner take most, because we think there is a strong network effect. And we also think there's a good land grab element to this, because once you've formed up into one of these co-ops, you're probably going to stay a part of it. And forming these co-ops is a great way to start locking in that land. Now, we did not give it a perfect score on virality, viral growth or distribution. So we think that it can get a good score on distribution because hopefully they can partner with companies like Shopify that represent a good channel to reach these various independent merchants. But unlike Link Exchange, there's no direct easy exposure. With Link Exchange, anybody went to the website, they come to the homepage, they see Link Exchange, they see Powered by Link Exchange. You do see Powered by Co-op, but that only happens when you go to a website and then you go through the checkout process. So it just does not expose people to the fact that this exists nearly as aggressively as Link Exchange did, which takes down its virality. We ultimately gave it an eight out of 10 on this, which is a good score, but not a great score. Right. Yeah. So, but retailers, you know, e-commerce, there's, there, there are trade rags that people read. And so I think the, the ability to get to a lot of them pretty efficiently is there. So it's not a five out of 10, this is an eight out of 10. Uh, product market fit, uh, you know, we think it's terrific. We haven't tried it. We haven't tried to use it. We haven't talked to retailers. Our best guess is it's about an eight out of 10 that, uh, you know, retailers are gonna love it. So, you know, it's just free money. People love free money. So market size, I mean, you know, we're talking about retail and in the world. So obviously that's a huge market, the gross margin. We've talked about take rate before. That's what we're talking about again. And then this is a perfectly scalable business. So this is a better score. This is an 84 out of a hundred that co-op commerce gets. And it, it kind of reminds me a little of fair, which is another company we just loved that's doing incredibly well. Uh, it, and you know, this one though is way earlier than when we saw FAIR, which was already on its like D round by the time we uh, we we uh, we looked at it because it was so far along before when we were forming the fund. But this one is just a seed round. Bessemer's in it. It was led by Sugar Capital. I'm sure they've got a lot of growing to do, and there's probably a a bit of a you know early cold start problem here where you know you kind of need a lot of merchants. It's just hard to find similar products. You know, if you, if you've got a somebody who's selling marine parts and somebody else who's selling umbrellas, you know, they're like, they're, they're just not going to match very well. So you need, you need a lot of retailers sort of in similar areas so that the, the matches are good. And therefore the things you attach are likely to be added to the shopping cart and, and all of that. So, um, you know, they're, they're certainly got some growing to do and we're going to be paying attention because we really do like this one. Yeah. And so the next company on our list is Chef. Again, we have to spell it out. It's Chef, S-H-E-F, Chef.com. And what Chef does is it is a marketplace for home cooks. So what you can do is you can go online, you can browse around, and all these people of all these different backgrounds are making food at home, which is then delivered to you. We were checking into it. looks like they tap into DoorDash for those deliveries, so they don't build out their own delivery engine. 
but this is a very good option. And the reason is even though the ticket sizes are relatively small, these are Uber sized tickets, right? Not Lime sized tickets in the single digit dollars, but probably Uber sized in double digit, low triple digit dollars, not all the way up to Airbnb hundreds of dollars. But the selection is really critical. Like we don't view food as a commodity. And if I go on, then uh, Argentinian empanadas are not the same as an Indian biryani. I mean, at the end of the day, they're both food, but I really care a lot. And what's great about this service is you're not only getting the food, you're also getting the whole story behind it. You get to know the chef. There's a whole story on how they learned how to cook and you see the photos of the different things that they can make. And so as a result, as far as two-sided marketplaces go, it does well on selection and it does well on consideration, even though the ticket size is relatively small and it is a very frequent purchase because, you know, if this is something that you develop the habit of, of getting into, you might very well purchase once a week or more. So this all leads us to conclude this is a strong winner-take-most component. It'll be interesting, uh, Scott, as you mentioned before, something like Xclaim is global, something like Lesson is local, something like Chef is even more local because you ultimately do have to deliver the food. It's not like you can cost effectively have it driven 100 miles to be delivered. It's got to be local. So this is a hyper local kind of thing. Yeah, it is. And I'm looking at the scalability scores that we gave it. I think we were a little too generous. I think maybe we should back off a little bit and not give them perfect scores on scalability because they got to get this food from the chef to the people. And even though DoorDash is handling it, there's some logistics over, over sort of a logistics layer over and above DoorDash that they're going to have to pay attention to. So, so let's, um, ba let's back them down to eight out of 10 for both org and ops scalability. Yeah. It feels like a conservative approach. And it will affect the score, but I don't think it's going to change. Yes, it's not going to change whether or not it's split scalable. So we've added, uh, we've a lot, this is live, right guys? We've added and changed the scalability scores to pull them down. It's still getting a perfect score in market size and gross margin because guess what? Everybody eats and it's a take rate kind of business. That pulls its overall score down to 81, which is not as high as we had it before. We had it 84 as highest co-op. So it's not as high as co-op, it's not even quite as high as lesson, but again, for us, the most important thing is it's above 80. It's split scalable, that's what gets us interested. And because once we, we're doing all this on publicly available information, once we start digging deeper, talking with the founders, maybe even trying the product ourselves, I, I speaking and thinking about Argentinian empanadas because that is one of the vendors that I was specifically looking at, potentially trying, it may increase or decrease the score, but it's good enough for us to get started. And I think we're pretty excited about this one. This was a $20 million Series A led by Andreessen Horowitz. So they've really got a solid Series A going here. Uh, companies located in San Francisco. And they're in many cities. I think they're in like 10 cities already. So you can definitely go on and try it out if you're in a major city that they're in. Uh, I don't happen to be right now, but I, I would totally do this. I mean, it, 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 I love the idea of expertly cooked home food that I can get instead of just your traditional takeout from the same five restaurants that are nearby. So I uh, love the idea that you can really expand what uh, what's available to you to to have for takeout and, and maybe it's way better too. So this is this is a good development. 
the and world. selection is incredible, right? I mean, now all of a sudden it's like, oh, here's Ethiopian food, here's Bulgarian food, but there's all sorts of things that would normally be difficult to find. But thanks to the incredible diversity of the population, you can actually get access to it. So really excited about this one and really excited about trying it and trying some of the food. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the last one is the controversial, we saved the controversial one for last. And Chris and I aren't going to agree on this. And sometimes we just have to disagree and then go find out what's really going on. But we'll get that. I'm teasing it a little bit. Uh, it's called Snack Pass. Uh, it's a company did a Series B led by Kraft Ventures. Um, I think it was, was it GC that was in here before that? It's uh, Andreessen is in here. General Catalyst is in here. Uh, a host of other investors, they're located in San Francisco as well. I believe they got started at Yale by some people who were tired of waiting in line just to get a snack in the afternoon. And they created a experience where you go pick up the food. You're, this is not a delivery business. So it's, a, it's, it's like MealPal that we've talked about before, where you deliver the, you, you, you don't deliver to get the food delivered. You have to go get it. But there's also a layer of uh, uh, <clears throat> loyalty on here where you get points and the more points you get that you can end up with free food and you can gift that free food, which then makes it social. So they've got a loyalty layer and then they've got a social layer and that social layer really boosts their score because it turns out people love to share little you know, items of free food with people to either get their attention or say thank you. There are a lot of reasons why you might want to do it, but it's taken off on a bunch of campuses. It's sort of growing the way Facebook did on campus by campus. And the scoring gets us to a pretty high score. And so, Chris, why don't you kick it off? Is it really winner take most? How do you think about it? Yeah, so I think you could definitely argue that there is a winner take most element to it uh, in the sense that you have these local social networks like colleges where once you dominate it, it becomes very difficult for someone else to break in. It's not the core business itself, right? The ability to place an order and go and pick it up. You know, we talked before with MealPal about there being literal shelf space where they have a MealPal shelf. Well, you know, when it comes to snack pass, they're allowing you to go pick up. They're also talking about putting kiosks, actually having these touchscreen things that restaurants would put in. That would be a little bit of a land grab. But at the end of the day, as I described earlier to our fellows, that's the, the people from around the world who help us find these deals. If I go to a coffee shop here in Palo Alto, there'll be seven different devices out there that I can use because there's seven different startups that have come through and begged the proprietor of the shop to adopt it. And so it's not clear that it's truly a winner take most thing. Now we ultimately gave it a score of nine and because we felt like there were still reasons why within the individual markets that it would be winner take most, but I don't feel comfortable about saying it's definitely winner take most. The virality, we feel very comfortable with. It absolutely is heavily viral. The fact that you can gift snacks to other people and the fact that they've made dining a social experience is really clever. That's probably the best thing that they've done. That's the reason why they're growing so incredibly rapidly. But when it comes down to our disagreement, the disagreement is that Scott loves this deal and I'm not certain. I really need to know more. And the reason is I don't see where the value creation comes from. Or the restaurants, you mean? Uh, yes, for the restaurants. So no, it, it, no, value creation for you could uh, value creation is value creation for the ecosystem as a whole. Okay. 
you can always redistribute value from say restaurants to consumers and you could argue oh i'm creating value for consumers no that's not true you are not creating value you're redistributing money from restaurants to consumers so in this case the question is is there value creation the value creation vector for meal pal was pretty straightforward which is people order in advance and as a result the restaurant can get the food supplies in in advance and they can use the time when the restaurant's not normally open because it was typically restaurants in an urban core where the primary business would be the lunch and the dinner with lunch being the biggest and they would have the crew come in and they'd have to get the comp the restaurant ready for opening but then they would have you know a lot of sort of downtime and instead they could put everyone on making the meal pal meals and since the ingredient cost is relatively low, that was very high margin business and it was value creation. It was creating value where none existed before. In the case of Snack Pass, you know, where does the value creation come from? People are ordering the food and I guess you're getting rid of some of the wait time at the register, but that's not a huge amount of value creation. The best argument I've heard is, well, people are coming in on off hours. You can give them discounts to encourage them to come in when times are slow. And that sounds interesting, but when we looked at what consumers were saying about Snack Pass, overwhelmingly were saying is, oh, there are all these great discounts. Well, I remember another company that had a lot of great discounts, Groupon, and ultimately was not good for the merchants. It's not clear that Snack Pass is good for the merchants. We had a couple of merchant interviews where they're like, yeah, it's not clear we're actually making any more money than we were before. So I don't know if there actually is value creation. I think it's a great consumer service. I think it's growing like a weed. I just don't know if there's real value creation. And I, I, I believe the merchants are going to love it because they're going to get traffic into their restaurants when they didn't usually get it. And that that's valuable. They'll figure out how to monetize that. And they get to set whatever the deal is themselves. So if the deals, you know, we're not making them enough money, then they can change that setting. And they, so but they if can they change fine the deal, tune. It's, it's they, a race yeah. to the bottom. It's a race to the bottom because if they get rid of the discounts then all the traffic goes away. And so are you actually building loyalty? And Not I know all of it. You know, if you need a smoothie, it's like, okay, like that's the place you love to are get a smoothie. Are you the only so you smoothie can... provider? I mean, if the other, the other smoothie provider is giving away smoothies for 50% off, you're going to say, screw it, I'll go over yes, there. Yes, you're the only one. There's only one nearby. So yes, there's only one. And so I, I think they, they here, I don't know, Chris, think that's Chris how it works in like, a college town. <laughs> just and I are totally speculating here. The way to figure this out is to just go to the company and say, what's your churn? What's your restaurant churn? They've been around for long enough that they have churn numbers on the restaurant side. Correct. And if it's really high, then Chris's concerns are validated. And if it's really low, then it doesn't necessarily mean Chris is wrong. They could be just sort of sticking around and they're about to all leave, but you know, or they haven't learned that it's bad yet. But it also could mean that actually, you know, a lot of the restaurants like it and have learned how to use this as a tool to grow their business. So Absolutely. I, I, it's, it's, it's easy to find the answer if we can get to the company and, and get some data. Uh, you know, this was a series B, so they're pretty far along. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if they, uh, if they're interested in divulging all that to us uh, in anticipation of their next round. I think they might be because people seem to really, really, really want Chris to help them grow their businesses. So that, that, that part of what we do is really working well. So and I, we I, both agree that it warrants further investigation because there is something very intriguing going on here. The notion of making food social and attaching it to the social layer is fascinating. And you know, I think that we would love for this to be something that is creating value and, and could be an investment for us. 
Sure. And I, you know, I, I have a feeling that Kraft has some pretty good idea. The, the leader of the series B has some pretty good idea what the merchants think. They probably talked to a bunch of them. Um, I do want to also point out that one of the things which made me a little concerned is the number of celebrity investors in this deal. So not only do we have Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors and we have uh, famous DJ Steve Aoki, we also have all three Jonas Brothers as investors. Well, and, you know, really, I mean, if the Jonas Brothers are in, then we're in, right? That's all. That's all I need to know. Uh, I, 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 tend to, <laughs> I tend to focus on what Nick has to say. I mean, I think Nick Jonas is, is really the Jonas Brother I follow the most. Yeah, yeah. Well, clearly, he's the smart one. Um, anyway, so, yes. They, so, Chris, is really that a negative indicator for you that there's a lot of uh, sort of celebrities that are involved? I kid uh, on some level. I'm kidding just a little bit, but I will say that I think in general, celebrity investors are a negative indicator, not a positive one. Well, I, so, but there's a way you can use celebrity investors to your advantage, obviously, because they have, you know, they're influencers. And if you can use that influencer to, to grow your business more quickly, to, you know, get to market sooner, to become that dominant player faster, then it makes sense to take their money. And so I think there are certain situations where you look at that and say, oh, okay, they're starting, you know, this is a book club club business and they got Oprah to invest. So that's a good idea. Um, I, you know, but overall, yeah, it, it's, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, it, it, we don't really look at who the angels are anyway, very much. Um, usually it's, we're looking at which venture firms yep. decided to vote with their dollars because they're the ones that have, they see everything. And, and if they decide to lean into something, that's, that's a pretty strong signal to us. Yeah. So, and by the way, well, all this reveals something important, which is this is just the first stage. This is the filter for us to reduce down this universe of potential investments to the companies that are the most exciting. But we don't just say, okay, great, write a check and send it to them. We're going to go talk with them. We're going to learn more about it because there's still a bunch of things that you can only learn by talking with management, by talking with customers, by doing traditional due diligence. But this is a great way to narrow it down and make sure that we're only looking at companies that we think have the potential to be huge winners. Yeah, that's right. That's the, I mean, that's the brilliance of the book that you and Reed wrote is that you can take the universe and distill it down to the you know, the true essence, the ones that are really have a chance at becoming that next Airbnb. So um, let's, uh, I guess that's a wrap for today. That's all six companies, all six, you know, all five, have, sorry, five, <laughs> it was going to be six. And then at the last minute we changed it to five. So it's all five companies. They're, uh, you know, they're all just solid blitzscalers that, uh, some of them I have, you know, I'm really excited about sometimes, sometimes, you know, a company will get an 80, I have less excitement about it with these, there, there's some really exciting ones in here. So I'm looking forward to learning more about them. Now, the other thing to note is we are recording this here at the end of July because we had a very busy July. We were off in Monaco presenting at a conference and I was on vacation at Disneyland, Disney World and, and whatnot. So we hope that our July deals podcast will get out a little bit sooner. We're getting our June deals podcast out at the very end of July. We're hoping that our July deals podcast will be more towards the middle of August. So look for that to come soon. Thank you again, everyone, for listening on behalf of Scott Johnson and the rest of the team here at Blitzscaling Ventures. We appreciate your support.